The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about friendship. You can read phrases like, make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man. You shouldn't go lest you learn his ways and get a snare to your soul. Or faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. As iron sharpens iron, so a man's countenance is sharpened by his friend. Or in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, where Solomon talks about two being better than one. They have a good reward for their labor. They can keep each other warm. They can lift one another up if one of them falls down. And the Bible has a great deal to say about the blessings of friendship and how our lives are better by having quality and good friendships. And as tonight we look at this lesson, the seven types of friends that we all need, I feel like I need to make a defense for the lesson before we start, because sometimes people have a warped view about friendship, about how important it is or about their need for or their need to be a good friend. We may have grown up in a society that doesn't treasure or prioritize friendship as much as the Bible does or as much as we should. The Bible begins by saying that everything God made was good. And Genesis 131 says everything he made was very good. But Genesis 2:18, the first time we read of something not being good is before sin entered the world. Genesis 2:18, the Bible says it is not good for man to be alone. And we see from that that God gave Adam Eve, but not everybody in the world will be married. And yet it's still not good for people to be alone. We were made for companionship. Nobody should say like the invalid in John five and verse seven, as Jesus was walking by that pool near Siloam. I have no one because God made us for companionship. There are four lies that we sometimes tell ourselves about friendship or maybe that we believe. The first one is I don't need friends. People say, well, that may be for other people, but not for me. I don't really need friends. I can sort of hang out on my own. Jesus was the perfect human and Jesus had friends. He had 12 very close friends. He had close female friends that helped and supported his work. Luke 8, 1 through 3. He had three deeply close friends, often called his inner circle. Jesus had friends and appreciated the need for friendship. And we're no better than he is to say to ourselves that we don't need friends. It's not because we're too cool or too self involved. We may be too self deceived, but every one of us, we need friends. Now, here's lie number two. There are no good friends. You can't trust people. And sometimes this is because we've been let down. Psalm 116 and verse 11 has David saying these words. I said in my haste or in my rage, all men are liars. Seems that David had been through some letdowns, some failures, some people had disappointed David. And as a result, he sort of took on this idea that, well, you just can't trust anybody. Psalm 41 and verse nine, the psalmist says, which later applies to Jesus and his interaction with Judas. My familiar friend has betrayed me. The one I ate bread with has lifted up his heel against me. Sometimes people disappoint us and they let us down, which can lead us to myth or lie number two about friendship. And that is there really are no good friends. You can't trust anybody. Or this one, number three, all my friends are great. You may have good friends, but you don't have perfect friends. We can surround ourselves with people that make us think everything's OK, that never challenge us. But we do need to appreciate that we need to evaluate individuals that are in our lives. While it may be a mistake to assume that there are no good people in the world that would like to be our friends, it's equally incorrect to believe that everybody who calls themselves our friend is genuinely and truly our friend. And so Proverbs 17 and verse 20 talks about this idea of a man is known by the friends that he keeps and those that walk with the wise will be wise. But a companion of fools will suffer ruin. Everybody isn't our friend and everybody shouldn't be. We should be friendly to everyone. But everybody is not on the same page that we're on. And so we should be careful. And here's number four. 
Well, I'm the best friend I could be. If everybody was like me, we wouldn't have problems. If we were checking on people as much as I did or if we gave people as much space as I give them, if people were as dependable and loyal as I was, then maybe things would be better. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. You're probably not the worst friend in the world and probably not the best. We could all stand to improve as we think about what the Bible says about friendship. And so in the remainder of our lesson tonight, what I want to do is just look at seven individuals, some of them very famous Bible characters, some of them rather obscure or unknown and talk about the seven types of friends that every one of us needs. Now, you may not have one friend with all seven of these characteristics or qualities. You may not even have seven people in your life that evidence all of these. You may have three friends that possess all seven combined, but we need friends. Augustine was right when he said, in order to have life, you need two things. You need to know why you exist, know your why, and you also need friendship. To live in solidarity or solitary, excluded from everybody else, is a great demise of humanity. We need friends. And so tonight, let's study together briefly. Let's just go through seven, the seven types of friends that we all need. And as we do this, let us also examine ourselves and see if we're the kind of friend to other people that we need to be. Now, here's number one. We all need a friend like Nathan. It's the pattern of God in the Old Testament to set kings up with prophets. And so just think about how this works out. Saul had Samuel, Hezekiah had Isaiah. You've had the king set up with Ahab and Elijah and David. Well, he had Nathan. As David's ministry begins, he's anointed by Samuel and has a pretty good relationship with him. First Samuel 16, one through seven. But before David ever ascends to the throne, Samuel dies as an old man. By the time David gets to the throne, the prophet that God pairs with him is a relatively unknown man by the name of Nathan. And when David does the unthinkable and commits adultery with Bathsheba and orchestrates the murder of her husband, Uriah, God confronts him. Look at Second Samuel 12 and notice verse one. It says the Lord sent Nathan to David. God orchestrated this event and orchestrated this meeting between these two individuals. And Nathan tells that familiar parable from verses two through six, that a certain man had plenty of flocks. Another man had a little ewe lamb that belonged to him and him alone. He nurtured it and cared for it. But one day the man with the surplus came and took that which belonged to him. And David's enraged in verse six and says he'll restore fourfold and he deserves to die. And then Nathan says in verse seven, you are the man. And he goes on to elaborate on what God had revealed to him. David, if you would have asked, God would have given you more. God gave you everything you wanted. He gave you your master. He's talking about Saul, his house, his kingdom. He gave you wives. And if you needed more than that, God would have blessed you with that. But this was not the right thing to do. We all need a friend like Nathan. You know, it's all too easy to surround ourselves with yes men and yes women, friends that always tell us you're great. You're doing the right thing that never confront us and tell us you need to improve what you said wasn't right. You owe them an apology. That was not the right, right way to respond. Sometimes our friends are so timid. They believe our friendship is made of plastic or that it's going to crumble if they ever confront us. And so we'll never argue. And we may call people that we get along like that get along with like that, our best friends. Well, we never have a disagreement. They've never corrected me. They've never said anything contrary to me. They may not be being a very good friend. David had a friend who could come to him in the hour when he needed it most and say, David, you're the center I'm talking about. 
You're the one guilty of violating God's law and you really need to make amends. You need to change. Psalm 51 is where David laments his sin and he repents of all that he had done with Bathsheba and cries out for forgiveness from God. And we've leaned on that psalm throughout our lives as we've studied the Bible. But I'm telling you, Psalm 51 probably wouldn't be there had it not been for a friend like Nathan. In fact, the inscription above Psalm 51 says when Nathan confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, thank God for friends like Nathan. I saw this book recently. I haven't read it, but it's called First Friends, the unsung, unknown and unelected friends that shape the presidents. I haven't read it yet, but this book is about people that were close to presidents, but they weren't elected into office. And you might imagine what delicate type of situation they would find themselves in. They're friends to the most powerful individual in the world. And do they have the courage on occasion to correct them, to say the things that nobody else will say to them if they're true friends, they will. And we need to be that same way with our friends, whether we're presidents or plumbers. In the end, we all wield an influence and we will become like those that we spend the most time with. And that's our friends. Nathan corrects David. You remember Paul in Galatians 4:16, And I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Paul loved the church at Galatia, but he wanted them to know what was right. In First Kings 22, there's an account of King Ahab wanting to go to Ramoth Gilead and take some land which didn't really belong to him. And Jehoshaphat is the other king at this time in Judah. And Jehoshaphat says, hey, can we check in with the prophets first? Ahab says, I already checked in with my 400 yes men, the false prophets. Jehoshaphat says, yeah, but there's a guy named Micaiah. Maybe we should check in with him. And first Kings 22 and verse eight, Ahab says, but I hate him. He never prophesies good concerning me, only evil. Well, prophets aren't hired to tell you what you want to hear. They're hired to do the work that God has given them to do and relay the truth, whether you like what you hear or not. And we need friends like that. I hope you have friends that will tell you the truth. Now, we don't need friends that continuously cut us down and only correct us. Then we'd have friends like Job's friends. Chapter four forward. They'd be crippling critics and not friends that build us up and help us. But we also don't need people to tell us that we're right when we're wrong. We need people to look us in the eye and say what you did wasn't right. The way you're behaving is not right. You need to amend your ways and straighten things up. What types of friends do we need? We need a friend like Nathan. Now, here's number two. We need a friend like Ruth. J.C. Ryle said this about friendship. This world is filled with sorrow because it's full of sin. It's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendships halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Ryle's point is this. When you have friends, you can go through the darkest times in the world and it'll be split in half because they'll carry half of it with them. And when you go through the greatest times of your life, it's as if you've doubled up because they joy with you and enjoy that blessing. In the end, as dark as this world is, Ryle says one of the brightest beams in it is friendship. Now, you know the story of Ruth. Go ahead and turn your Bible to Ruth chapter one. Ruth and Naomi and Orpah, these three women all bury their husbands. What they all have in common is they've lost their husbands. And the thing Naomi is suffering with is all three of these men were related to her. Her two sons and her husband are taken from her as their lives are cut down short. She wants Orpah and Ruth to go back home. Ruth one, verse 12, Ruth one and verse 15. And while Orpah eventually does and turns away, Ruth will not. And though these words are often quoted at weddings and for good reason, because of what they say about faithfulness and dedication to another, they're not quoted in a relationship of love between a man and a woman. These words are on the lips of Ruth as she speaks them to her mother-in-law or we could do better than that to her friend. 
Ruth 1.16, she won't turn away. She says, entreat me not to leave you or to return from following after you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, there I will die and be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And as you read down through the rest of Ruth chapter one in verse 18 and in verse 19 and verse 22, over and over again, the text starts to say these are the things they did together. They departed together. They went together. They go back into Bethlehem together. Because Naomi really needed a friend. Every one of us needs a friend like Ruth because life will crush us. The reading we had tonight from Ecclesiastes chapter four and verse 10 says when one falls down, he's alone. But if two, one falls, the one can lift up another. Ecclesiastes four and verse 10. And that's what Naomi needed. She was ready to give up on life and give up on herself. But thank God she had an individual like Ruth who came along and said, you're not finished. She wanted to change her name and said, call me Mara. I'm bitter. God has dealt bitterly with me. God's against me. And Ruth says, God's not through with you yet. Now, we know the rest of the story. The rest of the story is Ruth goes into Bethlehem, works hard, gets noticed by Boaz, is promoted, receives a surplus of crop, eventually marries. Boaz brings forth a child and Naomi is involved in the rearing of that child. But if none of those things happen, absolutely nothing else outside of going back into Bethlehem with Naomi, she would have been twice the friend she needed to be. She was a great friend to somebody who was deeply in need. And we need friends like that. The the sorrow and the hardship that we're going to suffer in our lives and that our friends are going to suffer is going to be varied among us. There'll be deaths. There'll be the loss of jobs. There'll be heartache. There'll be financial reversals. But as Ralph says in that quote, we can make it through if somebody else is bearing the load with us and carrying another half. We need friends like Ruth that'll go with us. Romans 12 and verse 15. Paul says rejoice with those that do rejoice. And what's the other part of that? Weep with those that weep. You know, we don't really have a hard time finding people to rejoice with those that do rejoice. But sitting in suffering and weeping with those that weep is a different matter altogether. And Ruth was there for Naomi. This man, Francisco, his dog, Monty, and he they would walk to the mountains in Wales all the time. In 2021, his dog was diagnosed with leukemia and could no longer make the trek. He put him in this wheelbarrow and he walked him up and down this mountain all the time. And people began to see Monty walking in the wheelbarrow, being carried in the wheelbarrow by his owner. They made the news and he said, you know what? This was my friend. He had been with me through thick and thin. And in his worst hour near the end of his earthly life, I was going to stand by him and be with him. He walked Monty up and down that mountain and he stuck by him and stuck with him as his owner. And if he would do that for a dog, for an animal, we should be able to do that for our friends. Job needed a friend like Ruth in his greatest hour, and we have to appreciate his friends. At the end of Job chapter two, they were that for Job. They were faithful men until they turned otherwise. And we need to be the kind of people that our friends can lean on in our greatest hour. We need friends like Ruth, not only friends that can correct us, but also friends that can comfort us when the life comes tumbling in. Emerson said in every life, some rain must fall. Some days must be dark and dreary. But we need somebody to hold the umbrella for us as life rains down on us and says, Hey, you're not alone. We walk together. And that's what Ruth was for Naomi. Now, here's number three. We need a friend like Jonathan. I guess when people talk about friendship in the Bible, Jonathan may be in first place. But there's a thread of irony or several threads of irony that runs between his friendship with David. First of all, if Jonathan is going to be the next king, David can't be. 
And the fact that he's friends with David, who the text says in 1 Samuel 16 is going to be the next king. This means Jonathan will never see the throne. Why would he want to be friends with him? Furthermore, his father hated David. 1 Samuel 18 and verse 9, the Bible says that Saul eyed David from that day forward. There was a rage and a hatred toward David that Jonathan never picked up on. No, after David kills Goliath on behalf of Israel and you could argue on behalf of King Saul, 1 Samuel 18 and verse 1 says that Jonathan loved David more than his own soul. And then again, in 1 Samuel 20, 30 and 31, the same statement is made. Their friendship is said to have surpassed that between a man and a woman. They were close and they were friends. When I say we need a friend like Jonathan, I don't mean like the first two in the sense that this friend does anything really specific for us, like correct us or comfort us. I would put Jonathan in this category of Jonathan is simply a best friend. He's there with David through thick and thin, through the caves and in Getty, through the run from his father, through the spears being thrown at him in the palace. Jonathan is just that best friend that Proverbs 18:24 describes. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And we all need a friend like that. I hope you have somebody that you can lean on through thick and thin, come what may. Proverbs 25, 19 says confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. It really does no good. But what about confidence in a faithful man in time of trouble? It's a sturdy and steady foundation on which to stand. We need friends like Jonathan who will walk with us through the valleys of life and also through the mountaintop experiences. And David was shaped by this so much so that when Saul and Jonathan die in battle at the end of 1 Samuel 31, the next thing we read in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is a psalm, a song that David sings and writes in honor of his good friend who died in battle. He called Jonathan a mighty man. Second Samuel 1 26, the mighty are fallen in the battle and the faithful individuals have been slain and perished. He honored Jonathan as his good friend. Here's number four. We need friends like Priscilla and Aquila. I think most people would say Paul was the most faithful servant in the New Testament that we read about, of course, outside of Jesus Christ. And all the things that Paul accomplished were great, but Paul did not succeed on his own as a one man band. And many times at the end of Paul's letters, he talks about other people who worked alongside him. Some we know a lot about and some we only know a little bit about. But Priscilla and Aquila, we're introduced to them in Acts chapter 18. In verses one through three, we read about them being tent makers and being expelled from Rome. And they worked side by side with Paul because they were of the same trade. Not only did they work side by side with Paul, but they were his true and reliable companions. In Romans chapter 16 and verse three and four, Paul calls on them, Priscilla and Aquila. And then he says they have risked their necks for the cause of the gospel of Christ. And they have worked alongside him and almost given themselves over so that they might be faithful servants and help Paul in his work. We need friends like Priscilla and Aquila. What do I mean, Priscilla and Aquila? We need friends that are going to help us to be better, spiritually speaking. You know, it's great to have friends to laugh with. It's great to have friends to joke with and who you share things in common with and great hobbies with. But we need friends that are going to encourage us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter three eighteen. We need friends who will Hebrews 10 and verse 24 exhort us to love and good works. Friends that we won't find ourselves comfortable sinning around that if we find ourselves not being all that we should, our lukewarmness will be uncomfortable around them because their fire for Jesus Christ is contagious and they make us want to be better. Friends that are going to encourage us to be present in worship service, friends that are going to encourage us to study the scriptures, to show ourselves approved, friends that are going to encourage us to put first things first, to seek first the kingdom of God and 
his righteousness. Matthew 6, 33. And we might think Paul often did that for others. But I'm telling you, this couple also did it for Paul. They laid down their necks for the gospel. Romans 16, 3 and 4. They had a church in their house. First Corinthians 16 and verse 19. At the end of Second Timothy, chapter four, they're mentioned again as Paul's co-workers, which spans almost 30 or 40 years of spiritual friendship. That as Paul traveled here and there doing his work, he could count on this couple. They did evangelism together when they corrected Apollos, when he only knew the baptism of John, Acts 18, 24 through 26. And they taught him the way of God more accurately and brought him along. We need friends like that. I hope you have friends who know the Bible better than you do. People that can help you and encourage you in your spirituality. Friends that are going to challenge you to go and reach and step outside of your spiritual comfort zone and will say things to you like, I think you should sign up for that. This is your ministry. Fulfill it. As Paul told Archippus in Colossians 4 and verse 17, he says, you have a ministry and I want you to fulfill it. That when you begin to slip and we all do on occasion, they'll come alongside you and say, listen, I'm concerned about you. I'm worried about you. This isn't a talk of judgment, but it's one of spiritual concern. And I want you to be alert. We need friends who care about our spiritual well-being and we need to be those kind of friends for others. Paul needed a Priscilla and Aquila. And let me just add an aside here to say that if you're married, then you should think about this relationship with your spouse. Think about doing spiritual things together and teaming up in the work of the kingdom. Say to yourself and to your spouse, what can we do together for the glory of God? How can we team up in the ministry together to serve God? In fact, you never read about Priscilla and Aquila apart from each other. They're always working together, always working in tandem, serving one another. Commentators get up in arms about whose name is first and who was the leader among them, who had the stronger personality. The point is they did everything they did to the glory of God together. They were in business together. They did evangelism together. They hosted a congregation in their home and they did it together. We need friends like that. People that won't let us coast, but people that are going to challenge us to be all that we can be to the glory of God. Here's number five. We need friends like the unknown four. We don't know their names, but we know they're important. They're mentioned in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. Go ahead and turn over to Mark's account, though. Go to Mark chapter two and notice how Mark introduces us to these four unknown individuals. In Mark chapter two, they come to Capernaum where Jesus is. But Mark chapter two and verse two says they can't get in because the people are packed all the way to the doors. And Jesus is preaching the word to these folks. And so they do what good friends do. They break up the roof and they let this man down. So that Jesus can heal him. And you remember what Jesus says, sons, your sin are your sins are forgiven. And then eventually he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. We need friends like the unknown four friends that will take us to Jesus when we can't get there on our own. Now, tonight I'm looking over an audience or a crowd that is filled with mostly people who've already obeyed the gospel. And so I guess this is reverse for us. We need to be the unknown four to other people. Put yourself in the shoes of this man. He's heard that Jesus has come to his town. He's paralyzed, and it'd be great if Jesus walked by his house. I mean, if Jesus just came by, then maybe he could shout out the window, Jesus of Nazareth, kind of like Bartimaeus at the end of Luke chapter 10. And maybe he could cry out and then be heard, but that's not his plight. That's not his situation. Jesus doesn't come by his house. The only way he's ever going to get to Jesus is if his friends take him there. He won't see Jesus otherwise. Somebody else has to help him to arrange the meeting. Now, I'm not suggesting tonight that you tie your friends down in a straitjacket and dump them in the baptistry. 
But what I am saying is this. Some of them will never know Christ and never know the truth unless we open up our mouths and say something to them. You know lost people tonight. You have people in your friend circle and your sphere of influence that are as lost as lost can be. And if the trumpet blew tonight, they'd be forever separated from Jesus Christ. That's not to make you feel guilty. They'd be lost because of their own sins. They'd be lost because they didn't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. But would we be able to say that we were friends like the unknown four? What do you mean? I mean, did we try? And then somebody says, well, I tried once. They didn't want anything to do with the gospel. Look at how these folks could have got to the door and said, look, man, we tried to get you there, but it's packed and turned around. They went a step further than that. And they said, look, we're going to break up the roof and then we'll let you down. Have we exhausted every measure that we can? Invited them to every meeting that we possibly could. Introduced them to every potential opportunity to study. Sent them material. Done everything that we could within reason, without nagging or being overbearing to say, I really want to introduce you to Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter nine, verses one through four, Paul says some of the strongest words on this subject in the entire Bible. He says, I wish that my Jewish countrymen, the Israelites, those that have received the adoption, the covenant and the promises. I wish that they could be saved and know the gospel truth. Paul says, in fact, I wish that I was accursed, that I was lost so that they could be saved. Now, Paul knew he couldn't really switch places with these individuals. They needed to obey the gospel themselves. But that doesn't change the fact that he was deeply concerned about their spiritual welfare, so much so that he says, I wish I was lost and that they were saved. Do we care about people that we know to that depth and to that degree like the unknown for? I didn't grow up in the church. And so I often think about things like this. You know, if it wasn't for evangelism, I would be lost. I read some parts of the Bible. I've been to various churches, but I just can't see any other way outside of the providence of God and a simple invitation extended that I would have come to know Christ any other way. And yet sometimes I let opportunities slip through my hands and people that I know, I say, well, I trapped them once or maybe they already believe this way and maybe they won't be as interested. The unknown force said, you know what? We're going to do what we can. We're going to do our part and we're going to go all the way to try to help. We need to be the kinds of friends that can't make people receive Jesus but that do everything within our power to arrange the meeting. You remember what Jesus says to the man, son, I see your faith. Your sins are forgiven. They couldn't put faith in this man, but they could get him before the one that he needed to have faith in. And every one of us can do that to the best of our ability. We need to be friends like the unknown for. We can't hoard the truth about Jesus to ourselves. We need to share it with others who won't come to know Jesus otherwise. You say, I've already tried. We'll break up the roof. Do something different. Extend yourself a little further. Remember, the stakes are eternally high. They don't get any higher. You can't say, well, I've tried all I can and give up. Not yet. Be like the friends of the unknown four and try to reach them for Jesus sake. Number six, a friend like Barnabas. You struggle to find a man that has greater things said about him in the New Testament than Barnabas. In Acts chapter four, verse thirty six and verse thirty seven, he's such a popular man as far as his giving is such a positive man that they change his name. His name was Joseph, Acts 4 and verse 36. But the disciples decided to call him Barnabas, which means son of consolation or son of encouragement. He was that encouraging. But I want to talk specifically about the kind of friend Barnabas was in certain situations. I don't mean just a friend generally of encouragement. That's what Barnabas was. But what I mean tonight when I say we need a friend like Barnabas in the sixth place is a friend that encourages us when we've hit rock bottom. Barnabas was an encourager at large, but he was specifically an encourager to people when they had sunk to their lowest of lows and when they didn't see any other way out. 
In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus obeys the gospel. And it's great news because this enemy of Christianity is now an ally, an ambassador for the truth. But when he tries to go and join himself with the disciples, Acts 9 and verse 26, they keep him at arm's distance and say, no, we don't want anything to do with this man. And it's Barnabas that speaks up on his behalf and says he's already been testifying about the Lord in Damascus. Give him a chance. In Acts 15, when he's with his now good friend, Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, and they've done mission work together. Paul says in Acts 15. 36. Hey, Barnabas, let us go back and check on the other churches and see how they do. And verse 37 says Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him. But Paul wouldn't let him. Paul said, I won't take him who deserted us in Pamphylia and did not go with us to finish the work. Why did John Mark leave? The text doesn't tell us. But this is what we knew. We knew Barnabas already was an encourager. And he won't go to the work without Mark. Verse 39 says that these two men, Paul and Barnabas, get into a sharp disagreement. This isn't just like, well, you'll go that way and I'll go this way. They got into a heated argument, these two faithful Christians, because Barnabas was that dedicated to encouraging. And the text says Paul was recommended by the brethren. You might think Paul was right, but when you read the rest of the New Testament, I tend to think Barnabas was. The second gospel account in our Bible is the gospel according to Mark. At the end of Paul's life, he says, get John Mark and bring him. He's useful for the ministry. And Peter calls him his son in 1 Peter 5.13. Barnabas changed John Mark's whole life and whole outlook because he didn't quit on him. You and I need friends like Barnabas who say to us, you're not a failure just because you failed. You're not finished. You're not done. You will not be defined by your worst moment as long as you get up again. As long as you take another swing, as long as you give it another try, God will give you one. Now we live. If you stand fast in the Lord, first Thessalonians three and verse eight, I know you can do it. You're better than this. Don't be defined by your failures. Get up again. Give it another try. Barnabas was a great encourager, but especially to people that everybody else had walked away from. Everybody else had given up on him. Barnabas said, I won't quit on you. Now, the people who have been that to us in our lives, we don't need to forget them, but we also need to be that and do that for other people. So many people who think they've got nothing else to offer. They've squandered the best years of their life. All of their influence is gone. They're worthless. They can't do anything right. And they need a Barnabas to step up for them and say, you're not finished. You won't be defined by your worst moment. You may do that to yourself, but God never does. He'll be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities. He'll remember no more. Hebrews 8 and verse 12. We need a friend like Barnabas. Now, here's the seventh one. We need a friend in Jesus. This is the last point, And if we if this is all we had tonight, we'd be able to say enough. If you've got the greatest friends in the world, they fail in comparison to the heavenly friend you have in Jesus. And if you don't have anybody else tonight and you have Jesus, you have all the friendship you need. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, I no longer call you servants, but friends. A servant doesn't know what his master does, but I have now revealed everything to you from my father. John 15, 13 through 15. There is a shift as John gets near the end of his gospel and he says, you guys are not just servants. We're friends. We sing so many songs about this. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. He's our precious redeemer and friend. Oh, Lord, we need a friend like you. And the Bible says Jesus is our friend. 
If we obey the gospel, he's our friend. Even his enemies, as they talked about him and tried to curse him, included this description. He is a friend of sinners. Matthew eleven nineteen. If all your enemies could say about you tonight is you're too friendly to the wrong kinds of people, that'd be a high compliment of phrase. Kids wanted to get near him. The, the apostles fought to see who was going to be closest to him. When cities heard that he was anywhere in the vicinity, they were in an uproar of excitement because they knew he went about doing good. Acts 10 and verse 38. There's never been a greater friend in the world and everybody in the world needs a friend like Jesus. The one that knows the worst things about us and still loves us and welcomes us and accepts us. You read in the Old Testament of one man, Abraham, the only person who's called the friend of God. And you know his life and you say, that's what you would expect. A prophet, a patriarch, a leader, the father of the faithful. And then you get to the New Testament and God says, oh, but not just faithful and famous people like Abraham. Anybody and everybody who names the name of Jesus can not only be his servant, can not only be saved, can not only be a saint. But you can say that the God of heaven is your friend. We need a friend like Jesus who leaves glory and comes to earth like a criminal, a lawbreaker. So that those of us who have broken the law can one day go to glory and experience all things and all of the bliss which only he truly deserves. He's the one that swaps places with us. Sympathy is this idea of feeling with somebody. We've been down the same road. But empathy says, look, I haven't been in your shoes, but I feel bad for what you're going through. Jesus does both. He feels with us. He knows what it's like and he cares about us. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he were rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Second Corinthians eight and verse nine. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians five and verse twenty one. We need a friend like Jesus. And the Bible says that we can have him as our friend. We need friends. We may think that we don't. We may think that we're an island to ourselves and I'm really a loner and I don't really need anybody. But the Bible says it's not good for people to be alone. We need other people. We were built for companionship and we cheat ourselves in our human experience if we believe otherwise. And I know in a social media world, we think, well, I've got 5000 cyber friends. No, we don't need a Facebook friend. We need a real friend, real friends people that you can depend on and not people that just go along with everything we say and do. But people that challenge and correct us. People that don't flee us in times of hardship and sorrow that won't take just turn away from me as the only way to go about it. People that are stubborn as Ruth and that say we're going to weep together. We're going to walk back into Bethlehem poor and destitute, but we're going to do it together. People that are close and good friends like Jonathan that we can laugh with and joke with and that know us deeply. People that challenge us to be better spiritually that say you got some more growing to do. You should be more involved. You should be more committed do your best for Jesus Christ. People that encourage us like Barnabas and ultimately Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our eternal friend. And maybe tonight somebody needs Jesus as their friend. We stand ready to assist you in obeying the gospel. If that is the case, Jesus was baptized with suffering so that we and being baptized in water might be saved, have our sins forgiven and have him as our friend. If you've already done that and you need the prayers of the church tonight, we stand ready to assist you. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.